certainly we can relate to the feeling of pursuing freedom and finding ourselves in, in cages. And that song by Need to Breathe poignantly paints that picture of the place we often find ourselves in. And it's the place that the, the prodigal son found himself in. He believed that he was on the pathway to freedom, and what he found was that he was actually on his way to confinement. We're going to pick up that story again today. If you have your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15. My wife and I were living in California at the time, and we were going to sleep, both of our heads on our pillow, and, and typically my head hits the pillow, and I'm asleep within one to two minutes, depending on what kind of day I've had. Um, anybody like that? Where you're just, you're down and, and out for the count. And right before I fell asleep, my wife leans over and she says to me, is our pool pump running? And we had a pool in our backyard in California, and um, I, I said, well, and I listened for a moment, and I heard a sound going, whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And I looked at her and said, no, I don't hear anything. <laughs> and we proceeded to go to bed. Uh, the, the next day, we were lying in bed again. And she didn't say anything this time, but she didn't have to. Uh, because that sound of that pulpit, I think, grew louder over the course of the evening and into the next day, and whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. And I thought, you know what, I could get up, but I'm already in bed. And, and I forgot, day after day after day, and eventually I just grew accustomed to the sound of my pool pump running all night and all day, every night and every day. I learned a valuable lesson <laughs> through this. One... My wife is, I'm not going to say all the time, but typically right. <clears throat> Secondly, it's never cost me so much to say those words. Because <laughs> when SDG&E delivered our electric bill the next month, it was $1,200. Turns out it costs a lot of money to run your pool pump over and over, around the clock, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. <laughs> That's for free, in case you have a pool. You want to keep an eye on that. I, I think, I tell a story because I think some of us have some pool pumps in our life. Some things that we've just grown accustomed to, some things that we ignore. The sound of that, oof, oof, oof. It may be a past that we're on the run from. It may be a fear of intimacy that we can't quite seem to get over. Some, some decisions that we've made, some, some things that we're not quite proud of. And instead of actually addressing it, instead of going out and taking a look at it to figure out what you're actually dealing with, a lot of the times what we do as, as people, not, as, not necessarily as followers of Jesus, just as people in general, is we have an, a unique ability to ignore the things in our life that are off, don't we? And it takes, sometimes it takes an act of God to wake us up. Sometimes it takes pain. Sometimes it takes more hurt. Sometimes it takes us getting to the place where we don't feel like we have anywhere else to go for us to actually address the things in our life that are off. 
It's exactly where the prodigal got to. If you have a Bible, we're going to start in verse 11 this morning, and I want to give us some context and lead us up to where we're going to land. Remember, Jesus is sitting with a group of people that is really divided in half. He's sitting with um, tax collectors and sinners who were sort of the the lowest of the low in the um, societal rankings in, in the first century. People who, religious folks, proved their devotion to God by having nothing to do with. And you have the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, the people who have crossed all the T's and dotted all the I's, and they've got it together. And the teachers of the law asked Jesus, why in the world are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you, don't you know our ranking system? Don't you know that in order to be holy, you've got to avoid things and people like that? And in light of that, Jesus tells a story. He tells three stories, and we're focusing in on the third, the parable of the prodigal, the prodigal son, the prodigal sons, and the prodigal father, verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. And he said there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided the property among them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he'd spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, No one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, and I perish here with hunger. But when he came to himself... It's an interesting phrase. It would be akin to us saying, I came to my senses... It was this aha moment for the younger son, this looking back in the rearview mirror of all the travels that he's had and all the things that he's done and the experiences that he's engaged in, and he has this clouds parting, what have I done with myself moment. Have you ever had one of those? One of these where the clouds part, where with clarity you can see the way that the decisions you've made have maybe harmed yourself or they've harmed others, where you can see that the pathway that you're on is not leading you to the place that you eventually want to get to, that, that you wake up the morning after and you go, how did I become this kind of person? He came to himself. It's been said that before we come to God, we must come to ourselves. That any journey towards our Heavenly Father begins with us coming to terms with who we are and what we've done and who we've been. And here's the thing. Will you look up at me for a moment? There's not a person in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or not this morning, if you're not a follower of Jesus, can I just say, um, I am so glad that you're here today. Because I I think you're going to get a picture of of who we are as people and of, of who God is as the creator and maker of this all that my hope is resonates with your soul in a deep and powerful way. 
But there's something that unites us all as people. It's we all have regrets. We, we all have things in our life that we would do differently if we could go back and do them again. And there's not a person in this room that goes, no, I've pretty much stuck the dismount every single time. If, if you say that, here we have a word for that, it's called lying. <laughs> or a lack of self-awareness, one of the two. One of the two. And, and Paul, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Rome, he, he says it like this. He talks about his quote-unquote condition or the reality of his life and saying, for I don't understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate, and I do it over and over, and sometimes I get to this place where I'm just going, I don't understand why I do what I do. And we've all been there. That's not unique to the Apostle Paul. That's not unique to any person in this room. We've all been there. And we'll stay there unless we can come to ourselves. Because we never come to God until we come to ourselves. The pathway to, to freedom that you and I long for is through the junk and the pain of life. It's not around it. It's not around it. And so if we never get honest enough to say, this is who I've been, and this is where I've been, and this is what I've done, and, and if we never come to ourselves, we never genuinely, honestly, and in a way that emancipates us, come to God. It's the story of the prodigal son. He never returns to the father if he doesn't first have a clouds parting moment. And, and here's the truth about you and I. If we don't get honest about our brokenness, we will never step into his wholeness. Ever. Ever. So, so here's the thing. There's a lot on the line for us today. There's a lot on the line for us in, in this story. There's a lot on the line for us. Because the truth of the matter is, friends, honestly facing our past, or we could just say facing reality, it could be our present, it could be our right now. Honestly facing reality frees us to move towards our future. But if we never get honest, we never get healing. In fact, will you say that with me? If we never get honest, we never get healing. If we're unwilling to deal with reality, we'll be unable to move towards the destiny that God has, by his grace, provided for us. R reality is one of our greatest and most elusive friends. It's hard to see reality, isn't it? It's hard to come to terms with, if you're the younger son, with, I've blown all my money, the freedom I was chasing only provided the cages that I now live in, and I'm looking at the pods that the pigs are eating thinking, that doesn't look that bad. Now, I've never been around too many pigs. I've just that one massive one at the Littleton Kids Museum. Anybody seen that guy? That guy's eaten well, it just doesn't smell too good, right? If you've been around pigs, my guess is you can go, you've got to be pretty low if you're looking at the pigs and going, man. And it takes that moment. It takes that clouds parting, oh my goodness, what have I done with my life moment for the younger son to say, I'm going to return and go back to my father because we have a unique ability to keep things hidden, um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, the author of the Sherlock Holmes series, 
He wrote a, a short little note, put it in the mail, and mailed it to five of the most prominent men in all of England. And it said this, it said, short and sweet, all is found out, flee immediately. And he was just messing with them. And within 24 hours, all five men were gone. Can you imagine the weight you're living at? If you're willing to leave at that ambiguous of a note, can you imagine the weight of waking up every day wondering if somebody's going to find you out? Wow. It takes a lot to keep things hidden. But here's, the, here's the beauty of this story, that if we're willing to step out of hiding, there is amazing beauty that comes from our brokenness. There's amazing beauty that comes from this aha, honestly facing, this is what I've done, this is who I've been moment, that frees us, frees you and me to move into the future. So here's my question for you. What are the pool pumps in your life? The things that you're just ignoring, hoping they'll go away that you're on the run from. Can I just tell you, in the end, it's going to cost you. And there's a better way. There's a better way. Let me, let me show it to you from the scriptures this morning. There's some challenges that you and I face with getting honest, and the younger son is no different. He's going to face those challenges too, and he's going to step into honesty because he knows that honesty is the very first step in any sort of healing, in any sort of redemption, in breaking forth from any sort of cage. It's admitting that we're in it. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. I lost it again. Okay, verse 17. Here we go. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here from hunger. And so here's his conclusion. I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, father, I encountered this famine and it took all my money. Or father, um, I, I was taken advantage of and I got a bad deal. Father, the, the stock market took a little bit of a downturn and everything that I'd saved up is gone. No. What he says is, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. It's this I. One little word. It's the I of ownership. I've done this. This is where I have been. It's that I that says, I'm not going to make excuses anymore, and I'm not going to blame the famine, and I'm not going to blame the stock market, and I'm not going to blame the person that took advantage of me. It's just, this is on me. And here's what he does. First thing is he, he confronts his numerous excuses, I love the way, I love the way that the modern, uh, sort of mother of modern nursing, Florence Nightingale, said it when she said this. She, she said, I attribute my success to this. I never gave or took an excuse. 
As you know this, you can do one of two things in your life. You can either make progress or you can make excuses, but you can't do both. The, the people that move towards freedom in their life, that they address that pool pump as it were, are people that go, listen, I'm not going to make excuses about why things are the way that they are. I'm going to confront reality and I'm going to confront my excuses and I'm actually going to say, this is on me. I have sinned. This is the younger son's coming to his senses. And we're the king of excuses, as DC Talk said. We've got one for every selfish thing we do, right? Anybody? No one. I sort of feel like you hung me out to dry there. It's all right. We'll bridge things. Oh, one of my favorite scenes in any movie is from What About Bob? Where he's talking about excuses, reasons that he does not want to leave his apartment and things that could potentially happen if he does. He says, I have trouble moving. He says this to Dr. Leo Marvin. And Leo Marvin asks him, well, what could happen? And here's what he says. Well, dizzy spells, nausea, fever blisters, hot sweats, cold sweats, difficulty breathing, difficulty swallowing, blurred vision, involuntary trembling, dead hands, numb lips, and fingernail sensitivity. Man, we... <laughs> I love that scene. We're pretty good at coming up with excuses, aren't we? This is why this thing happened, and this is why that thing happened. And it's interesting, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is passionately and ruthlessly confronting people's excuses. In the book of John, chapter 5, he encounters a man who's paralyzed by a pool, a pool of Bethesda. And the story goes that as an angel would sort of dip down and uh, dip their finger in the water and stir it, the first person to the water would be healed. And Jesus comes to this man and he says to him, he asks him an interesting question, do you want to be healed? Do you, do you want to get better? And he says, sir, I have no one to put me in the water. His answer is the same answer that we often give. Yes, but. Yes, but. Yeah, yeah but I, I have all these challenges and I have all these things in my past and I have all these regrets and I have all these things. And, and he goes, okay, let's just, let's just cut through the excuses. Jesus' question is really simple this morning. Do you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be free? Do you want to be whole? confronts his excuses. As I've looked at my life here, there's three areas where I find myself, three ways I find myself making excuses. Here's number one, denial. Denial. If you read through the scriptures, King David is an excellent example of denial. Second Samuel chapter 12, the prophet Nathan comes to him and he says, David, let me tell you a little story about this king who went and stole a little lamb from a peasant, the only lamb that this guy had. And David listens to the entire story, entire story, and he just can't see that the story Nathan's telling is about him until he says to him, David, you are the man. You're the man. Our ability to create reasons why this isn't a problem are vast. They're endless. It may sound something like, well, listen, there's no issue with the car. You just turn up the radio and it's gone, right? <laughs> or put a post-it note over the check engine light. 
This is a safe place. Anyone want to admit you've done that? There's nothing wrong with the marriage. All marriages go through cold spells. The text message exchange is normal. Nothing wrong with it. It's totally platonic. I don't have a fear from intimacy. It's just that other people have continually wronged me. Yeah, I can continue to spend money this way. Eventually, we're going to pay it off. We're going to pay it off. Denial. It's a, it's a human condition. I, I thought this was poignant. Lucille Clifton, a poet, she writes a poem and she pictures herself trying to keep her eyes closed, ignoring the truth. And when she finishes the poem, she finishes with his voice telling her, you might as well answer the door, my child. The truth is furiously knocking. Might as well enter the, answer the door. That whoosh, whoosh, whoosh. It's not gonna, it's not gonna go away. It's gonna cost you. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing we do. If it's not denial, it's comparison. And not the good kind of comparison, but the kind where it says, well, well, they're, they're I'm not as bad as them. I haven't done what they've done. As if life grades on a curve, right? So if we can be in the top like X percent, we're gonna be okay. Comparison. Finally, blame. It's their fault. It's not my, this isn't on me. It's their fault. And if we can get the onus off of ourselves, they sinned. I didn't sin. It's on them. It's the thrust of Taylor Swift's new song Look What You Made Me Do. Right? But it's as old as humanity. It happened in the garden. It doesn't just happen in pop music in 2017. It's Adam and Eve in the garden. It's God coming to Adam and saying, Adam, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And Adam says back to God, the woman that you gave me, she gave me the fruit. So God, let's talk for a second. I have some questions for you too. Why in the world would you put such a person in my life? Right? So it's not just, it's not just I'm blaming the woman. Adam's like, I'll throw God under the bus if I can. Right? You gave her to me. I mean, we have to stop and at least admire that for the woman to be deceived, it has to be a personification of evil that comes into the picture and presents something that looks delicious. For a man to be deceived, all he needs is a naked woman. That's all he needed. It was done, right? Blame is in our spiritual bloodstream. It's part of our heritage. It's part of our, our spiritual DNA. And as you can see in the Adam and Eve narrative, it's typically the people closest to us that we throw under the bus first. What does it look like this morning for you to confront excuses? It may be in the department of denial or comparison or blame, but here's what ownership requires. Will you look up at me for just a second? Ownership requires that we name whatever it is specifically and that we step into it as ours. This is who I am. This is where 
I've been. Because you and I, we cannot excuse ourselves to freedom. It is a never-ending cycle, denial, blame, comparison that just keeps us in those same cages. And friends, we have got to, if we're going to move towards this freedom that God has for us, we have got to be more passionate about that freedom than we are about avoiding pain. Because it can be hard to raise our hand up in the air and say, this is what I've been, this is what I've done, and this is the reality of what I deserve. That's hard. But there's no freedom without it. Um, just, I, wanna, I just want to make a special note. My guess is if, if you're in this room this morning and you've suffered some form of abuse, um, may, maybe sexually, physically, spiritually, um, if you read those three things, denial, comparison, blame, my guess is the enemy wants to turn those in your life to say this, that was your fault. And I just want to speak into that lie. If you're hearing that lie this morning, I just want you to know it was not your fault. Whatever happened, it was not your fault. And so don't listen to the enemy's lie of, I need to blame myself. No, you don't. No. That, that, that's if there's something that, we're, that we've stepped into, going against the flow of who God has created us to be in his wisdom and goodness and design. But if you've been abused, that, that's a different category. Verse 18, he says this, I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So, so here's what he does. Here's what he does. He admits his prevailing brokenness. First, he confronts his numerous excuses. Next, he admits his prevailing brokenness, his, his sinfulness, his darkness, his fracturedness, if you will. Now, there's a lot of talk about what sin is, and a lot of people want to avoid the topic altogether. The only problem with that is the Bible, okay, and it doesn't avoid it. And we could do a number of different messages trying to answer and wrestle with the question, what is sin? So like a gem, and as you turn it, you can look at it different ways. Here's the way that this narrative, this um, parable, talks about sin, okay? And I think we can relate to this because it's a story form. So, so what is sin according to the um, prodigal son narrative? It, it's three things, okay? First thing, it's a posture towards God of give me mine. We talked about this last week. If you weren't here, I'd encourage you to hop online and watch or listen uh, to that message because it's a part of this process of stepping outside of the Father's favor when we say to him, listen, I think I can do this better on my own. Remember, there's two postures we can take towards God. Either give me mine or I am yours. And so that's the first posture, this give me mine. It's selfishness. It's as the reformers would say, it's the curving in of oneself on oneself. That if we're a radio station, we're all Ryan all the time. This is about me. Many have argued that sin at its core is selfishness. It's a turn in on ourselves. And that's the way it starts. That's the way the narrative begins with this give me mine. Here's the second thing sin is. He leaves and goes to a far-off country. 
Before sin is ever a breach in law, it's a break in relationship. Let me say that again. Before sin is ever a breach in law, you've done these things wrong, it's a break in relationship. You've left the Father's house. You've stepped out of relationship with the Father. Which is why the scriptures will say, and it sounds so strong, but if you understand the background, it makes sense. For whatever does not proceed from faith, which is trust or relationship with God, is sin. So anything outside of relationship with God is anti-design. It's against the way that he created us to live because living in relationship with him is at the core of why humanity even exists. So it's give me mine, it's selfish, it's curved in on self, and it's I'm going off on my own. It's relationship or it's life apart from the author of life. And then, and only then, it's, quote, reckless living. Okay, so when we talk about sin, we typically jump to the third thing that the narrative points out, reckless living. I've, I've done all these things. But that doesn't happen if we don't turn in on ourselves and step out of relationship with the Father. Those things follow, certainly. They always do. But they only follow. They don't lead the way. See, there's a difference between sin and sins. Sin is being outside of relationship with the Father, being curved in on ourselves. Sins are what we do because we're outside of relationship with the Father. And what we do, as Cornelius Plattinga Jr. said, I think brilliantly, is he said sin is the culpable disturbance of shalom. It's the fracturing of peace that God designed you and I to live in. And it happens in his creation, and it happens in the created beings. See, the backwards narrative says to sin is to be human there couldn't be further from the truth. Actually, sin mars our humanity and distances us from the author of life. So he, give me mine, curve in on self, leave to a far off country apart from relationship with the Father, and he embraces a different lifestyle, quote unquote, reckless living. But he says something else, doesn't he? He says, I've sinned. And then he says, he makes this really interesting statement. He says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And I wrestled with that this week. I wanted to try to answer the question, is he right? Is he right? Does he, is he no longer worthy to be called the son? Well, yes and no. No. He's not right if he, what he means by that is, I'm no longer your son, because how do you become a son? Well, you're born into a family. You've got a, you've got a blood running through your veins that carries a name. So what he doesn't say is, I'm no longer your son. I, I think he gets it right. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Uh, the, the word here, worthy, is oxo in the Greek, and it literally means a one-to-one -one ratio or a one-to-one -one correspondence. It means if you were to uh, put what he's been given as a son on a scale and what he's lived up to as the son, that what he's lived up to has failed 
miserably. I think what he's getting at is that there's a fractured relationship between his good father and himself. Please hear me on this. We've got to come to this place. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. It doesn't mean you don't have worth. It doesn't mean you don't carry value. It means that the life that we've lived has not honored the gift that we've been given. And if we can't come there, if we can't go there, if we can't come to our senses, as it were, this Isaiah moment of woe to me, I've sinned, I, I, I live amongst a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen the glory of the king. If we never get to this woe is me, come to our senses moment, we will never take the journey back to our father. So I, just, I want that to sit on us a little bit this morning because it's against this darkness, this I'm no longer worthy, I haven't added up, I've marred the gift that you've, been, that you've given me. It's against the backdrop of that darkness that the beauty of the gospel shines, you guys. It's, it's putting a, a diamond on black velvet and letting it just go, that's what he's doing. Um, so the picture for you and I is, I am in an absolutely terrible position. I'm in the far off country with absolutely no resources and I'm deeply loved by the Father. There's a false narrative that floats around. It's in one little pithy statement. It says this, God cannot be around sin. You know what the problem with that is? The Bible. Because he's, he he's around sin. You, you know that, right? He actually pursues you in your sinfulness. We get it backwards. We get it wrong. It's not that God can't be around sin. It's that sin can't be around God. That in his presence, it's refined. It's um, extinguished. It's taken away. He's not Mr. Clean up in heaven going, ill. <laughs> He's the passionate father saying, come home. And Jesus's life is demonstration of this. It says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That we are the outsiders who have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Here's the beautiful truth of the gospel, friends. And you see it all throughout this narrative. Verse 24, for my son was dead and now he's alive. Notice what the father does not say. My son was bad and now he's good. That is not the gospel. The gospel is not about God making bad people good. It's about God making dead people alive. It's about him bringing those who were far off near to God. And it's not like he created a pathway for you to walk. It's he might bring us to God. See, we're not invited to be moralists as followers of Christ. We're invited to be worshipers. People captivated with the goodness of our Father. So he says, I will rise. I will rise and I will go. 
And he does in this picture of resurrection. Friends, I want to say as clearly as I can to you this morning, since grace is available, returning is possible. Since grace is available, returning is possible. You can address that pool pump in your life, and you can risk, and it is a risk. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. It is a risk for the younger son to come home, but you can risk coming home. You can risk honesty. You can risk ownership. You can risk because grace is available to you. I want you to hear a story of my friend Nicole who beautifully led us in that prayer this morning. And her story is a beautiful one because God's gotten a hold of it. Because she was willing to say, all right, this is who I really am. God took it and he turned it for the glory of his name. Hi, my name is Nicole and I'm a grateful believer. I never felt like I mattered anyway, so what would it matter if I made the, this decision? So it was a secret, and another secret, and another secret, and then the, the decision. I had to come to terms with myself. I was in between relationships when it happened, when I did become pregnant. One of my major secrets was having an abortion. and. I lied about it for so many years. I was in college at the time and graduated with a, you know, a degree and just was able to play those masks and survive it. My voice doesn't matter anyway. Nobody's going to listen. Um, and that can go back to when I was 13 years old and the situation that I had with my mom when I had to admit to her that I was raped by her best friend's son and it was my fault. So that, that just caused this switch this light switch to come into my life that I could either turn on or turn off. And I lived in the turn off mode for so long and just internalized it. For an additional 16 years caused more resentment, more lies, more hurt, more hurting of people until May 20 or May 24th of 2012 when God brought me to my ownership of life. I just cried and I said, okay, God, what is it? Help me. Um, he had been pulling at me for so many years. I mean, that one lost sheep, is that's, that's not just a story. You know, he leaves his 99 and he goes for that one lost. But until I realized that I was like that one lost sheep that mattered, because I was lost for so many years, and the people who were supposed to love me, and who I was supposed to matter to, didn't do that for me. So I didn't trust that God would do that for me either um, until I wrote my suicidal letter and my intentions. God says, mm -mm. it's not happening. So it's like writing a resignation letter and then the boss says, I declined your resignation. <laughs> yeah, he completely, he completely declined my resignation letter. <laughs> And I never thought I'd be more grateful for that because I lived in so much fear that my life didn't matter. And when I heard him say, you matter, you're mine, it's like, what? I'm whose? <laughs> so it was actually in 2013 um, that I was able to say those things in, out loud that 
what my life looked like from my story. We can all talk about grace. We can all talk about unconditional love. We can all speak those words, but we don't know what they feel like. When everything that you have played in your head and your heart, that hamster wheel of stories and lies and no, if I tell somebody my deepest, darkest secret, they're not gonna accept me. And when you say that out loud, people are like embracing you and loving you and really truly feeling that genuineness from someone. But every time I get to speak about it, it reminds me how beautiful he is. Because um, I forget. We all forget what unconditional love looks like, what unconditional grace looks like, what unconditional forgiveness looks like. So when I get to share and I get to do something like celebrate recovery or sharing here, and he reminds me of that, and I'm just like, okay. I know I'm having a bad day and thank you for reminding me that I'm yours. But I never thought ownership would be freeing. I never did because I thought ownership would be discipline and ownership would have to be condemning. But taking that ownership of life and the mistakes and the choices that I made um, just opened up God's pathways to create this. And that's His beautiful glory and His beautiful daughter that I never knew I was. You gotta give it back. You can't keep it in. You have to give it back. And you have to be fearless in saying things out loud. Fearless. Yeah. Friends, the, the truth of the matter is, is that when we have this coming to our senses, this is who I am moment, that moment doesn't define us. It actually frees us. It frees us into life with God. It frees us to walk back the journey home where we see him running towards us. It doesn't define us. It refines us. And the risk of vulnerability, I know it's hard to say this is who I've been and this is what I've done. The risk of vulnerability results in the fruit of freedom. It does. It does. And that's what hangs in the balance this, today. Will we have these moments with God and with each other where we say this is really who I am? And risk that he'll love us anyway. I, pr I pray that you will. Because otherwise, we're just on that hamster wheel of life. But by his blood, we have been brought near. We're the outsiders brought in to his family. Would you stand with me? We'll sing our benediction together this morning in this beautiful hymn. And can it be... Long my imprisoned spirit. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound, fast bound in sin. 
and nature's night, thine, thine I diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Jesus, I thank you that when you get a hold of a story, when we come to ourselves and when we come to you, you turn ashes into beauty, you turn mourning into joy, you turn ruins into new beautiful buildings. And God, we pray, would you do it in our lives and in our midst as a church? When we're honest before you, would you chart a new course forward with you for us, we pray in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Thanks for being